The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizikans Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. I think we are not here to worry about ourselves. We are here for a greater purpose. In the Quran it says, we are here for the good of others. The Quran? Yes. I'm a Hafiz. I know the Quran by heart. By heart? Isn't it very long? 114 surahs, containing 6,236 verses. And you know every word? Many Muslim people know the Quran. I thought you were Hindu. Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host, and on today's show, we've got an interview with Bollywood actor Ali Fazal, star of the upcoming Stephen Frears historical drama, Victoria and Abdul, about the English queen's friendship with an Indian servant in the last years of her life. But before we get to that, we first want to bring you the return of one of our favorite segments, Pre-Woke Watching. (laughs) If you're new to the show and don't know about Pre-Woke Watching, it's a chance for guests to discuss their pop culture epiphanies. The shows or movies they once loved, only to eventually realize they were kind of problematic. In the latest installment, my colleague Christina Cotarucci, who writes for Slate's Double X blog, revisited a pretty racist kids movie from her childhood. Check it out. Well, I am pleased to have back on our show for the first time in a while, Christina Cotarucci. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back on. Last time you were on, we discussed both the Women's March and Hidden Figures. That was back in January. So this time we're going to discuss something a little uh maybe less fun than Hidden Figures. <laughs> so you, I've never seen this movie before, so you're going to have to tell myself and probably a lot of the listeners about The Ugly Dash Hound, which is your pre-woke watching <laughs> choice of today. So this is sort of a classic 1960s Disney movie. Um, it was one of my favorites as a kid because I grew up with a dachshund. Um, and my mom had grown up with a dachshund and, you know, we had a, another dachshund. And so it was uh, a family favorite. So the the point of the movie is that there's this litter of dachshunds and one that they think is just an ugly dachshund ends up growing up to be a Great Dane. I forget exactly how, you know, the wool is pulled over their eyes. But the funny thing is the the Great Dane is super well behaved, but the litter of dachshunds is always up to mischief, knocking things over, trashing the house. But then everyone blames the Great Dane, which is sort of, you know, the the wife in the couple loves the dachshunds thinks they can do no wrong, and the husband is always defending the Great Dane, Brutus. Now, Mark, that dog is too destructive. He has got to go. No, he isn't. Shut up! The puppy shut up. Uh, Brutus. uh... You hear me, Brutus? Be quiet. Oh, don't waste your breath, Mark. He's as stubborn as you are. 
So I had amazing memories of this movie, which I think we owned um, when I was a kid. On VHS? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was a (laughs) well-worn VHS. Um, And once I got older, you know, I was maybe 27. It was a couple years ago. And I, my girlfriend had never seen the movie. And I was like, oh, my God, we're going to watch this adorable movie. Uh, it's, you know, take you right back to, to childhood and a, a good dose of 60s nostalgia. And we're watching it. And I realized there's this weird, uh, you know, minor point in the plot that's incredibly racist. And I was immediately embarrassed that I had brought this movie to like one of my childhood favorites. Like, uh, you know, I had loved this film. And it turns out a point of the film that I had totally forgotten was there's this um, father-son duo of uh, Japanese-American men who run a catering company. And the couple at the center of the film, who has uh, the Dachshunds and the Great Dane, are hosting what they call an Oriental Bacchanal. And it's a big party with an Oriental theme that they're throwing for all their friends. Ah, lovely. Uh, (laughs) And the... The, you know, Japanese-American catering team, the funny part is they're so afraid of the big dog and they keep calling him Ryan, which is, you know, the way they pronounce lion. So mm. there are all these scenes of the movie where they're just yelling, you know, Ryan, Ryan, stop the Ryan. And it's like that's supposed to be self-evidently funny. And I was just sitting there in horror watching as an adult, like, how could I have thought this was hilarious as a kid? <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, you know, much slapstick comedy is wrought at the expense of these two men, one of whom uh, is an actor called Mako, who ended up being a very well-known Asian-American actor and sort of advocated for better representation in films. But, um, this, you know, he acted in this movie when he was young, and it does not age well. Oof. Um, first, am I saying Dachshund, do- Dachshund, right? Or is are there multiple ways to say I've it? always said Dachshund, but yeah, I think people pronounce it a variety of ways. So you do you. Okay. <laughs> I will, because uh, for some reason I feel like I've heard I've 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 heard Dachshun too, and I've always said Dachshun. I've never said Dachshund. So I'm just gonna keep going with that. Maybe yours is like the appropriate German way to pronounce it. Maybe I don't know. Anyway, so do you remember like what did you say to your girlfriend while you were watching it, or did she say anything for like what was that moment like? I th- we both immediately like were jaws dropped, uh, you know, because it was so evidently racist. It wasn't like, you know, oh, this representation wasn't quite fair. It was like an Asian stereotype in this movie that we all know is racist. Um, So, you know, we were both sitting there sort of like eyes wide. And I think I was just like, oh, my God, like, I did not remember this part of the movie. (laughs) Like, this was a surprise. Uh, And, you know, it's not the main focus of the movie. But I think, you know, as a young white kid, it never even struck me as offensive. You know, when I was like five and six and seven and eight and nine, it was just like, oh, ha ha, this funny duo that's afraid of the dog and has a funny accent and I am now like horrified and cannot justify that uh but I'm sure glad that that I saw it again and now you know before showing it to anyone else can preface it by saying like yo this is a really racist movie with a bunch of cute dogs in it (laughs) that that kind of reminds me of like every time 
and I've seen this movie many times, but every time I go back and rewatch Breakfast at Tiffany's, I always forget about Mickey Rooney's character in that movie, which is he's in at least wait. So in the little in the ugly dash and or dachshund uh, is <laughs> there. It's played. Uh, you mentioned Mako, but is the other is the son or the the other character played also by an Asian American actor at least? Yes. Yeah, okay. they're not. No one's in yellow face here. Okay. So, you know, kudos to them, <laughs> to the casting directors for casting actual Asian American actors. Right. But that obviously does not. It's <laughs> very small consolation prize. Yeah. But yeah, it just reminds me because like I always that's like one of my fears of going back to rewatch a lot of stuff from my childhood that I haven't watched in a while is like going back to rewatch it and then realizing, yo, this is like really, really, really fucked up. <laughs> and and not yeah. even just ambiguously, but like very explicitly. It's funny because another thing that stuck out to me in the movie, you know, upon post-woke watching that I hadn't noticed before was, you know, it's it's sexist in a lot of funny ways. Like um, my mom and I, my mom was there too when we were watching this movie the second time around. But um, we all laughed when there's this like romantic part at the beginning where they're talking about how great their life will be together, this couple and... The man says something like, I'll work and you'll keep house. And that's like so romantic to her, like him telling her that she's going to keep house. Mm -hmm. But that's the kind of thing that's funny because, you know, it's a product of the times and we can all sort of agree like, ha, women can do whatever they want. Right. Um, But it's not like misrepresenting and like getting laughs based on racist stereotypes. Um, So, yeah, it was also funny to think about what what is unacceptable now what sort of like prejudicial and discriminatory treatment is is acceptable and what isn't right i mean that's you make a good point in that we might be able to like laugh at this japanese stereotype now if things had gotten better for asian americans yeah. on screen uh, they haven't really at all um you have very few examples of of I mean, I guess if we're looking at TV, we have Fresh Off the Boat. That's one show. Um, Crazy Rich Asians, which is like, I think, probably the most anticipated project featuring a mostly Asian American and Asian class uh, based on the, the novel of the same name. That's something to look forward to. But really, it's like kind of paltry uh, when it comes to Asian American representation on screen. So. Yeah, I can see how we can't really laugh at. I mean, we did we we kind of did laugh when this is happening, but like it's laughing while cringing as opposed to, you know, being able to br- dust brush it off and say, "Oh, this is just a product of the time." Cuz the time hasn't really changed that much. Right. And at the time, you know, women really did keep house and uh, you know, it's it, it was more of an honest depiction that now seems sexist versus uh, you know, I feel like there are still jokes being made at the expense of, you know, the accents of various foreign born people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess the the quote unquote comedy of the 1960s movie was a little more like one note, like, haha, this person can't pronounce a word than it is now. But I, that still definitely plays a role in some like unfairly caricaturized depictions of Asian Americans and other folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So will you watch this movie again? It's so tough. (laughs) Um, Maybe. I mean, probably more to laugh at and not necessarily laugh at the racist part because I still find it, you know, 
disgusting. But it did play a big role in my childhood. Like, I just have so many fond memories of watching these little dogs get up to mischief. But then again, I also loved Milo and Otis, which I haven't watched recently. So that might also be racist. But I think (laughs) there are only animals in that movie. So probably less so. Um, So maybe I'll substitute uh, Babe or Milo and Otis for this in my funny animal babe. canon. I love Babe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I vaguely remember watching Milo and Otis, although just because there are mostly uh, animals in it doesn't mean it can't be racist. We, I, I think of like yeah. uh, Lady and the Tramp had the um, when she goes to the dog pound. There's a dog whose name I can't remember what his name is, but he like lists his sister's name, and it's like in my sister Rosita Chiquita Juanita Chihuahua, and it's like oh god, oh, right? <laughs> I forgot that. about that character. Oh yeah, yeah. So Milo notice you might want to be careful. <laughs> Who knows? Well, that, that might also destroy your childhood. But yeah, I'll assess and report back, and maybe we can do another animal segment of pre-woke watching. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Christina. And I kind of want to see this movie now, just to. I don't know why. I I never heard of it before, but now I'm curious. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And now, Ali Fazal on his new movie, Victoria and Abdul, in which he co-stars alongside Dame Judi Dench. The film is from Stephen Frears, who is known as the director of such films as The Queen and High Fidelity. And it's a retelling of the last 13 years of Queen Victoria's life, which were spent developing close ties with Abdul Karim, her Indian servant turned Munshi, which in Urdu refers to an interpreter or language instructor. Now, for decades, Karim's existence was confined to historical footnotes because after her death, members of the royal family destroyed much of their correspondence and even edited his name out of her personal letters. But in 2010, journalist Shrabani Basu published a book detailing the relationship after several years of in-depth research and reporting. And that book is what inspired this movie, which opens nationwide on October 6th. Fazal talked to me about how he prepared for the role, the criticisms the film has received for its lighthearted take on British colonialism of India, and how he hopes to see the Bollywood industry evolve. Check it out. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, Ali, today to discuss your new movie, Victoria and Abdul. Thanks so much for coming to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. So first I want to talk about... uh, basically how you got this part to begin with. I know you've been working in Bollywood for several years and have slowly been making the transition into becoming a leading man. And now you're moving into these bigger international roles. Uh, You even before this movie had a small part in the Furious 7 movie a couple years ago. Yes, I did. I did. Well, I mean, you know, this was, again, a meeting that I was having with a business associate of mine. We were sitting and she told me, that the auditions were happening the week before. And I might have missed it, but there's no harm trying. And I did. And, you know, we I remember recording two scenes on my phone, and we sent it. And um, about 25 days later, I got a call saying, Stephen Frears is coming down with Bieber and Kidron, and they want to meet you. And, they, they, of course, they were also looking for actors in B-Town and sort of amongst many other Bollywood actors. I mean, this was a long process. I mean, it went on for about another month mm-hmm. and a half or so. I flew down to London for the first time, in fact, on this film, uh, to the studios to read with a couple of actors. And then I got back 
that's when I got the news. Right. And what about this role in particular was appealing to you in the first place? Well, I mean, to, be, to start off with, you know, it was something nobody knew about. And very conveniently, it was a topic. It was a story of the last phase of Queen Victoria's life that had just been brushed aside, you know. Yeah. And it's 15 years. It's a long time. And I think that this particular relationship that they shared was something very unique because it wasn't just friendship or it wasn't just one meeting where something happened. It was, you know, a teacher-student. It was a mother and son. It was respect, you know, and a very tender relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it is crazy. Well, crazy maybe but not surprising uh, the way in which they the family of queen victoria and her and her subjects sort of just brushed aside this ent- this entire story and it wasn't until just a few years ago that it came to light again uh, how yeah. much like how much did you know before the movie was even approached to you or brought to you how much did you know at all about abdul if anything i mean it, it, it's really sad i didn't know anything i just knew that there was there was something that an indian man had gone to meet Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. That's the only probably information I had. Um, but that's it. Because we, you know, I mean, it was both sides of the turf, you know, Britain and India. They they made sure that this was just not recorded. And so, and nobody in India seems to know about this. Mm. So how much um, research did you do when preparing to, preparing to play Abdul? Well, I mean, I... I had to I had to use a lot of research that Shabani had done, um, a lot of the letters that she had unearthed uh, from Abdul Karim's journal that was found in uh, with his extended family in in Karachi. And she's the and one who how, she's the one who um, uncovered this, the, the researcher. Book. She wrote yeah. the book, right? Yeah, but of course, I think somewhere I had to stop. I didn't read her book to begin with, and I thought Lee Hall had written a very very interesting script and given it a very fantastical approach and it's a story that could be told over five days and yet it's 15 years you know and I think that was something very interesting but I did read a lot of books in history and I think sometimes I regret that decision of not reading her book because I read up I think I must have gone through a good nine ten books just to sort of try and pinpoint uh, Abdul in, in those events and those historic I learned the Quran from my father. He's my Munshi. Munshi? Yes, Munshi. My teacher. Well, we would like you to be the Queen's Munshi. But I'm only a servant, Your Majesty. A servant cannot be a Munshi. Well, you are a servant no longer. You are my teacher. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there there had to have been a lot of filling in of the gaps that had to be done by the screenwriter. Yeah, there had to be. I mean, I th- it was almost mathematical. I mean, I was deciphering this man from his handwriting, from, you know, the f- two, three photographs that we had and the medals they would wear, the costumes they would wear, because every single costume was a particular stage or a status it would represent. Or a medal would represent a particular time, you know, in which that particular medal medal was given out or um, just small things. I mean, (laughs) you know, where I think every department came in so handy and they were so helpful just guiding me through this entire process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
one of the things about Abdul in the in the movie is that he's written as being very devoted to the queen, like from the beginning. Uh, there's a couple moments where he kisses her feet unprompted. Uh, he declares later on that he wants to stay with her, even though she insists that it maybe he should return to India. And, you know, we never get really a sense that he misses India or is sort of weighted down by the British occupation. So could you talk a little bit about how you came to understand Abdul's sort of unyielding devotion for her? And how did that translate for you into your performance? Well, I think I think it's it's a very interesting mix with, with Muhammad and Abdul, you know, coming to England. And Muhammad, his friend, you know, who you see in the film, he... He sort of resonates and mirrors the emotion of the country at the time, yeah. mm-hmm. and how they felt about the British Empire ruling them, and how we all felt, I guess, you know. And Abdul knew that. The problem, I think, is where Abdul, being so young, uh, it almost sort of um, is synonymous with him being naive. But he wasn't. He was this learned man. He was a hafiz. He's he was studying the the book. He was well educated. Um, you know, he knew his English. He had learned English and brushed it up six months before they left for uh, England. So this is a man who chose to see past the race and the culture and and the geography and the royal protocol and the royal household. Of course, he didn't plan this. Mm-hmm. He just he was there to present a mohar and go there for some time and then come back. Of course, that's when, you know, they locked eyes or, you know, they met and things changed. And he saw this woman, this, this the queen of three-fourths of the planet, you know, the most powerful woman on the planet. She, and for him, it was strange. It was strange that this woman is not the happiest woman on the planet. She should be. Mm. She was lonely. She was bored. And here, you know, he was... Um, he was here. He was there in the palace with all this knowledge, and and he thought, I mean, he finally decided to share it with her, mm. and she decided to open up. I mean, it's weird. It's weird. It sometimes makes you wonder how how that first meeting must have really, really happened, or how she opened up. But I think that's that's what it was. They intellectually stimulated each other. So I I thought there was a lot of honesty in Abdul. Um, and he was an opportunist, and he and, and rightfully so, you know. Mm. Pretty much resonates with all the youngsters today, you know, entering, including myself, you know, coming into new countries and trying to rise up uh, in the face of um, sometimes, you know, so many things. Um, I mean, I've been lucky. I've been very lucky to have, you know, had a smooth ride. But many people are not. At that time, it was straight up. You know, you're Indian, you're wrong, you don't fit. Right. Yeah. So I had to take that into account and um, try and flesh it out, try and flesh the character out with as much honesty, of course, and I had to put in a lot, lot of myself in it. Otherwise, I'd just be lying. Yeah. I, I definitely I definitely got the sense uh, that that boyishness, that young feeling from your performance. And it's interesting to hear you describe it that way and to sort of explain why he he was such a contrast from Muhammad, who Muhammad is sort of like you would ex- the way you would expect yeah. his character to be. Yeah, he was. I mean, yeah, he. I think he chose to be, and which is why he sort of, you know, there's a scene in the train when both of them are sitting together and talking, and he says, you know, you have to see 
the larger picture. Mm-hmm. You have to stop being a whiner. This is what we're all doing all the time. It was the government of the British was the government. Britain was the government in India. A lot of Indians were working for the British Raj, for the Queen. Indians fought for in in World War Two in World War One, um, on behalf of the British Army. Um, and here was one guy who got a job, and he took it up, mm-hmm. and that's it. And eventually, now the problem was when they started talking to each other. I mean, it was two people from totally different ends of the spectrum, um, and that sent shockwaves across the royal household. Right, right. To sort of jump off of that point, there have been some who have criticized the movie and some who have actually seen it and some who have only yeah. are only just judging it off of the, the trailer. But they've criticized it for being something like another depiction of British ocup- occupation of India as sort of nostalgic and wistful. Um, in what ways would you argue that Victoria and Abdul is different from those other types of movies or doesn't necessarily succumb to those sorts of uh, issues? If you feel that way. In fact, I, I, I think it does not glorify anything at all. I think it pretty much mocks it, mm. you know, especially the British rule in India. It does not um, um, at all. In fact, at all times, it's almost comedic to see this world inside the royal household from this one man's view. And this, he sees the strangeness of court. and <laughs> It's funny. Mm-hmm. These people are doing all sorts of things, you know. I mean, not looking in the eye. What is that? How do you see someone? Right, right. You know, those were things that probably struck him odd, you know, and and he probably laughed to himself. And I think Stephen got that, you know, and he sort of used it um, to drive a point um, that there were some really obnoxious things that went on back then, Mm -hmm. uh, you know. So I, I, I don't feel at all. I don't feel this movie glorifies it. I don't know what the reviews are saying. Though. Well, not so much as glorifying it, but I think maybe to your point about it being comedic, takes it more in a lighthearted tone than some people would. Uh, some, someone like someone like Muhammad, say Muhammad was a present day person. Uh, he yeah, was alive now. Yeah. He would probably maybe not feel as though taking having the the other uh the people of the royal household feel as though or be be portrayed as though they are just like sort of butts of the joke and and that sort of thing those are the sorts of criticisms i've seen yeah no i understand what you're saying mm. i i just feel i think um, it's it's been treated in a way where a man in, in those times would have would have seen it mm-hmm. you know yeah. i mean i know my grandparents and everyone even though it was a it wasn't a very nice uh, period, but they've had one of their best times, uh, you know, during that time. Mm-hmm. And they describe these instances or these incidents, um, and they all happened then. I mean, what do you do? You know, you and they. The situation was comedic. Mm-hmm. It was it was wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I do. I, I know. I know what you mean. He has treated it that way. Mm. I think it's interesting. It's interesting that he that he sees it, these these comic elements and sort of stupid moments in the middle of all that drama. I mean, I remember there were some hilarious moments in King's Speech. I mean, it's such a wonderful story. Yeah, yeah. But it had that that comic element to it, mm. and I thought it was wonderful. Mm. 
Mm. Even though it's a, such a such a serious subject. Yeah. So I actually want to move a little bit to your to your career and, and talk a little bit about that, uh, just because I think you know a lot of our listeners might not be as familiar with the world of Bollywood and what it's like to work in that industry. And I know you've worked really hard to get where you are now. And you've talked about how you've done it without having any real connections to the industry to begin with. You had no family, um, no mentors. Can you explain a little bit like what, how difficult is it to break into Bollywood uh, if you don't have any connections whatsoever? Well, uh, it is hard. You know, it's it's not like, I mean, I can wake up Monday morning and tell daddy I need a launch pad, on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and, and I want my movie launched on Tuesday. I got to live out the week and uh, enjoy my Sunday. And I think that's pretty much what my career in Bollywood was. I started with a cameo there, as I did here, um, in, in a movie called Three Idiots. And it did well. And, you know, I did well after that and sort of went on slowly to doing leading parts. I think that's the right way and the democratic way, but sometimes it takes time because there is that favoritism. And I mean, fine, because rightly so, because it's a small fraternity, you know, uh, families look out for each other, mm-hmm. and anybody would. But eventually, I think now times are changing, and and somewhere, you know, it's it's the hard work and the talent that that's really sort of speaking. The good good content is coming out and making money as opposed to old formula formulas and and commercial you know song and dance dance films which were just there because we'd had it for the last 2 3 decades right um and we've had a golden period you know indian cinema was at its peak in the 50s i mean we were yeah. doing some really cool stuff back then and i really i'm very blessed to be part of this 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 wagon where we're trying to be the change and maybe bring it to the global stage, you know, because it's all closing up. Netflix and Amazon coming in. Um, I think it's an exciting time for actors on both sides. You know, I've just done Victoria and Abdul and had such a wonderful experience on this film with the whole team. And I look on this side and it's wonderful to the kind of work that's happening. I mean, at TIFF, you know, just seeing the lineup of the films, it's it's amazing. Mm. It's amazing um, just to be be part of all these people, this troop of wonderful actors, you know, I, I can only hope that I um, I get to explore more in the West. And, and, and yeah, I mean, I see it as one world now, and I think Bollywood needs to up its game. Um, and we are, I think we're going through that change. Do you mean in terms of the types of stories it tells or the types of actors? It, yeah. yeah, the types of actors, the types of, the choices of actors being taken in, the types of stories, um, and we are, we're going through that. You know, it's changing. Mm-hmm. I know that even just, just about two years ago, I mean, my, my girlfriend's film was in, in at the Cannes Film Festival. It, it, it won two awards, but it was the biggest flop back in, uh, back in India. Which film was that? It was called Masan. Mm. And, uh, and, and that wouldn't have happened now. Yeah. In, in what way, do, why do you think it flopped in, in India, her movie? So there was no audience for I mean, you know, because the audience is a condition and there's a lot of, you know, you don't get screens. Mm-hmm. You know, small films like that just don't get screens because everybody's conditioned and everybody sort of wants to make money and it's always the commercial movies that would, would make the money. It's the big the flashy movies. Running for those. Yeah, yeah. But somewhere along the way, you know, um, a Birdman comes in and makes like, 
shit of the money. Mm-hmm. And you think, wow, okay, the audiences are changing. They want to see good, meaningful stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, now a good film um, can be trusted to make money because it spreads on word of mouth. So on a Friday, by evening or Saturday morning, you know what's going to happen. You know, if it's going to work or not. Yeah. That that sounds a lot like Hollywood, to be honest. We're that is, of course, going that through is, the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also because we don't, we don't. It's only Indian territory, you know. And Bollywood is again half of India, not even all of it, because we have a South Indian industry, which is another huge ball game. So we have very few screens, and in those screens, you try and fit in. I mean, a lot of movies, you know. So it's hard. Yeah. So I think the answer is, and nobody's ever said this. I feel, but I think the answer is to just have more theaters in India. Mm. That's it. Yeah, I didn't realize that was such a problem, but that's, yeah, that that totally makes a lot of yeah. sense. I think we should. Yeah. yeah. Now, I you I know you've talked about wanting to represent India. Uh, in your work and and kind of serve as this representative of your country, uh, what does that mean to you? Like, what does it mean to represent India as an actor? And like, what kind of characters do you hope to play going forward? Oh, I, there's no end to it. You know, I think it's a symbolic thing when I say represent my country. It does not mean that I play Indian every every movie. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, it could be anything. You know, I, I loved how Stephen pushed me on this film. I mean, it wasn't my comfort zone. He keeps you thinking, keeps you on your feet, um, and I have to, you know, catch up and, and keep up with everyone, everyone else on the film. I can only hope that I find directors who can see some potential, I guess, and, and, and try and experiment, you know. And I think it's a great time to do some really cool stuff. Um, and I don't want to hold back. I mean, I, 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 I'm open to... Well, I'm an actor, you know. I can only hope that I can be molded into something different every time. Yeah. I know you've you mentioned in one interview with uh, HuffPo India last year that there was a director, you didn't name the director, but they told you that he this person was worried that they would have a hard time selling you to distributors because you weren't, quote-unquote, commercial, commercial enough or even art house enough, uh, which are yeah, two very different a, things. Yeah, because it's really weird. I didn't fit a genre because I'm the guy who I can't, you know, I would change my hairstyle or, or change, you know, the way I am for a role. But a lot of Indian actors would, uh, at least the earlier ones, not too long ago, they have to keep an image. You know, mm. so you'd see the person with the same hairstyle in five different movies. Wow. Because that's the image and that's the sort of persona that the, the audiences want and want to follow. So it's almost like you're building a figure, a public figure, and not the actor. He's actor. The actor is second. Mm. And for me, that's not how I work. I mean, I like to think, you know, we... we we have to mold us. That's the whole damn point of, you know, getting into something um, on working on a project, you know. Yeah. You're not the project. The project, you're a part of the project. Right. Right. So my last question for you is, uh, when is the last time you saw something on film or in TV uh, where you felt as though you were represented and something that you didn't work on, but you felt as though you saw yourself in a character, in a in a movie, in a moment, and you just felt as though you you could see yourself in that in that thing. Oh my God, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, the one that's most recently stuck out to you, if you can remember. Almost recently? Yeah. Um, I think it would be... Oh, I, I just saw... I mean, you know, superhero movies don't work. <laughs> <laughs> it could be any any movie. <laughs> no, but I, I, I remember watching, and this is not recently, but I just, because it's in my head, mm-hmm. um, The Fighter. With oh. Christian Bale and, you know, um, um, I think, was it Mark Wahlberg? No, yeah. Christian Bale and... Yeah, yeah, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, I just, I loved it. I just loved it. I thought, you know, I couldn't stop picturing myself in that. Mm. I think just the training that they went through and... Um, you know, even even Jake Gyllenhaal's last movie, and in fact, two of his movies. One was the the Nocturnal Animals, and you know, the other one um, um, with him playing the boxer. I don't I forget the name. Oh, Southpaw. South, of course. Yeah, yeah, Southpaw. Yeah, yeah. You know, you see the prep, you see the kind of work that's been put in, and and you know, they're pushing boundaries, and I'm mean, pretty cool. Yeah. Ah, so you like the boxing movies, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they happen to be boxing, but. Um, but yeah, they they stick out, you know. I think. I mean, if there was drama, I've always been obsessed with a lot of um, Marlon Brando films. I mean, I've grown up on that, mm. so I know them all, and I've always pictured myself in any one of them. You know, I mean, on the waterfront, streetcar. I thought streetcar is my all-time favorite, and he was just wonderful. Yeah, I mean, he's irreplaceable. But you know, it's. I guess I'm sure everybody's pictured themselves doing those parts. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a pleasure to have you on, Ali. And yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verlyn Williams. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And I know we ask this of you all a lot, but if you haven't yet, please take the time to rate us on Apple Music if you're loving what we do here. It helps more people find us, and we're always happy to welcome new listeners into the Represent fam. And one last thing, do yourself a favor and check out Slate's weekly podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Hosts Gabriel Roth, Rebecca Lavoie, and Carvel Wallace discuss all aspects of parenting from toddler to teens. And they answer listener questions, share their own parenting triumphs and fails, and talk through parenting issues in the news. You can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>